this week on Dig Me Out. It's probably too late now, so won't try to taste it. With your hosts, Jason Ziak and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week, thanks to a requested review by one of our listeners, we are checking out the album Fear of Girls by Blue Bottle Kiss mm-hmm. from 1996. And not only that, we're going to be joined by the, uh, the lead singer and guitar player and songwriter for Blue Bottle Kiss, Jamie Hutchings. So let's just get right into this interview Right now. So, uh, thanks for joining us and uh, getting all this Skype stuff figured out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I haven't used it for um, yeah, I haven't used it for ages. So I was like, oh, I don't even know if I know what my Skype like address is. But there we right. go. We've. Uh, We've managed to um, leapfrog the hurdles of technology to get in contact. So that's good. Technology and, and, and time as well. It's all, I'm always confused with the uh, time zones in Australia. Sometimes it's 10 hours difference. Sometimes it's 16. Sometimes it's 8. I, I, I'm always baffled by how big that country is. Yeah, well, it's about the same size as you guys. So it's like the same thing. You've got these different time zones depending on on which side of the coast you're in it's like from here to like perth it's it's ages so yeah it's yeah it's a big block of land you're in sydney yeah um so one of our listeners um andrew uh tennyson he uh he suggested that we check out a a blue bottle kiss album uh, that you put out uh, I think it was a '95 Fear of Girls, and yeah, um, 90, yeah, yeah, '96, '96, and yeah. we had previously reviewed, um, I think the 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 album that came out before that, Patient. Oh, it came out after. Oh, it came out three, after. Okay, yeah, that came about three years after Fear okay. of Girls. Um, and that was our first exposure to the band, and I actually went back. I think we reviewed that two years ago, and um. Luckily, we've got a lot of people from Australia or people who have been following music for a long time um, that were aware of a whole bunch of bands that we didn't know about. And um, I went back and listened to that episode actually today just to remind myself of uh, what our our opinions were. And we both really liked that record. And... um, we're really happy when Andrew brought this one to us because uh, I remember talking about in the episode how many, you know, you had a lot of albums and a lot of EPs and, you know, we didn't, we don't always get to go through everybody's catalog. So it was, it was no. nice that Andrew brought it to us because we were able then to not only review Fear of Girls in preparation, but also get to listen to a bunch of the other records um, to get uh, caught up on everything. So, I wanted to ask in in doing the research on this record, aside from the uh, this, this actual album, but did I read correctly that you worked with Jack and Dino on this record? Yeah, yeah, that's right. 
How'd you end up getting hooked up with him? Um, we were signed to a fairly large label at the time. So first label we signed to um, was like an imprint, you know, sort of back then. I don't know if it still happens now. I'm sure it does, but in the 90s you know there was that sort of alternative rock explosion probably mostly courtesy of nirvana and it sort Mm -hmm. of swept up Uh, no i know it happened in america a lot as well where large labels started signing bands that probably wouldn't have you know they wouldn't have sniffed at earlier just on the sort of smell of you know the kind of grunge explosion or the alternative rock or whatever so we we got signed to an imprint label and we put out a couple of albums um, that were recorded locally and they had a fairly big couple of big hits on their label courtesy of some other bands so there was a bit of cash flow and they basically thought they the guy kind of that was the head of the label just approached us and said okay well, we're gonna give you a bigger budget on this album and we want we think you know we'll use a bit of a name producer so write down some names of people that We've made records that you like, and um, and Jack was one of the people that that we put down, um, and they got in contact with a few. I don't know how many people they got in contact with from the list, but um, he was the one that was the keenest. So, yeah, he was really keen to come down to Australia and and work with us. So I went from there. Which records did he do that you guys uh, really pointed at and? Liked. I guess I guess a lot of that early sub pop stuff. I guess you know a lot of the early sub pop stuff had was that more garagey primal thing like Mud Honey and Tad and stuff like that. But um, which you know we like some of the early Mud Honey stuff. But I guess the stuff we liked the most was more the psychedelic kind of rock stuff that that he did. Like the first couple of Mark Lanigan records, like especially Whiskey for the Holy Ghost. Um, mm. I really like that album. Um, I mean, Afghan Wigs were a pretty big band. Like their first couple of records, we were really into. Mm. Um, there was another more obscure sub pop band called Rain Sanction that did a couple of albums. Um, uh, yeah, so some of those, yeah, so, so American bands, you know, like early some of that earlier noisiest sort of psychedelic kind of rock that was coming out was the stuff that. We liked that he'd worked on some of the early Screaming Trees, I guess, as well. Yeah, so that was the motivation behind him being one of our choices. So, were you got? Would you say that you you guys were fairly American influenced, or or no? Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, a lot of that sort of late '80s noise rock, like um, some of the early Dinosaur Junior records. Sonic Youth. I mean, we were pretty young, so a lot of that music was pretty big for us. Um, uh, yeah, so there was definitely Australian influences and then kind of some 70s kind of folk influences as well. Um, so there's a lot of us, there's a pretty, there's a pretty colourful Australian 80s music scene of un- underground music that was pretty important to us as well. A lot of the arty sort of underground Australian music, like, you know, early Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and the Laughing Clowns and a lot of that stuff as well. So I would say it was an amalgamation between some of the 80s sort of arty indie stuff from Australia, like Nick Cave, the Go-Betweens, the Triffids, and then, and then a lot of... Yeah, sort of noise rock from America, like, you know, Dinosaur Jr., Husker Du, Replacements, Sonic Youth, Afghan Wigs, all those bands. Um, they were a pretty big deal for, for 
for us. That that sort of wave of American music, I think, was was a big influence. Sure. Did any of those bands make it over? Were you able to see any of them live? Um. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, Dinosaur Junior toured um, around. I saw them when I was about sixteen. Um, Sonic Youth, yeah, around the time Blue Bottle was starting, I got to see them around the, the Dirty tour. Uh, yeah, uh, Buffalo Tom were a band I liked a lot at the time, the early Buffalo Tom, maybe their first couple of albums, got to see them a few times, yeah. So those sort of bands started touring Australia quite a lot and doing very well in Australia. So was Blue Bottle Kiss your first band or, or did you play in bands before that? Nothing of note, like nothing that really gigged. Like, gotcha. I played drums more um, when I was a teenager and played in played in a band. And then I had a, a the early the the version of Blue Bottle Kiss that's on Fear of Girls. The drummer and I had a couple of jammy sort of bands that never really got out of a lounge room or rehearsal room. Um, so, but nothing that really re- got beyond demo tape or even playing. So, Blue Bottle Kiss was the first serious band where we started gigging and, and then releasing material. That's interesting that you said you played drums because this is a running theme that we've had that a, a lot of lead singers that we've spoken to at, at some point or lead guitarists have played drums and you can hear it in the songwriting. It's not, you know, four chords and a 4-4 four, four beat. There's a lot of uh, more more rhythmic approaches to the vocals and more rhythmic approaches to the guitar playing as opposed to i guess more you know guitar centric playing you know yeah that's something that you picked up on earlier that your your vocals and your and your guitar playing kind of came from a rhythm perspective yeah for sure no that's pretty astute like it's it's true um i think my phrasing and stuff is kind of you know, it's not like it's hip hop or anything, but it but it is rhythmic. I, I will I will fit words into into kind of weird places um, sometimes, and I think that comes from from being a drummer originally. And the same with yeah, the same with the with the guitar playing. It's I guess um, I've got friends and songwriters where they'll write a song on acoustic guitar, and then after that, it's pretty much left. They almost need other people to come in and do stuff because they can't really imagine what other stuff happens. But if you've sort of started from drums and then moved on to melodic instruments, and when you start writing songs, you immediately hear everything at the same time, which can be annoying for other people. But um, yeah, you do have that, for want of a better word, that sort of <laughs> visionary is a horrible <laughs> word to use, but you do, you do hear everything, you know, in a more... You know, you do embellish things, you know, with your imagination and hear the band playing before they're actually playing, which is probably a bit different from someone that only plays guitar and sings. So what was the uh, writing process for Fear Girls? I'm curious because this it's a big album. There's it's a it's a long record. There's a lot of different styles and structures to songs. It's, it's not structured in a pop sense where you have a verse and then a chorus and a verse and a chorus and a bridge. And, you know, there you're doing all sorts of different things. So was there an approach of like, just whatever you wanted to do, you were going to do it. Or did you have an idea of, I want to write a song that starts really loud and then goes into a quiet chorus or what, what were the writing sessions like for that record? 
Well, there's a lot of songs. Um, I mean, you know, I'm critical of the album because there's too many different styles and too many ideas on it, which is why when you hear Patient afterwards, it's a lot more it's a lot more stripped back and it's a more cohesive album. But then some of the attractive elements about Fear of Girls is that it's is that it's got yeah, you can get get lost in it. It's a quite an ambitious album, and some that's that's its strength and its weakness, I guess. I, I had a lot of material that I'd accumulated as a writer, and I think the first couple of albums we did were more specific. The first album we did is quite a grungy record. The second album is quite or EP. I think it was is more probably experimental. Um, where this was like, I guess the opportunity to work with a budget and with a producer and with a label kind of showing more interest, it was almost like, oh, <laughs> let's try and do everything at once, you know. So there was a huge amount of songs and some of the poppier songs on it, I wasn't really that interested in. But of course, the record label, as soon as they heard those demos, they were pretty insistent that some of the poppier sort of folky pop songs that appeared on it, which was the first time that kind of style of writing had appeared on a Blue Bottle Kiss record. They were pretty full on about those songs being on there. So it probably technically could have been two albums, but again, it was just a bit of an opportunity to um, just explore every facet of music that interested us at the time. So yeah, there was it, it, it was a bit of a, a matter of kind of just throwing everything against the wall and seeing what what stuck so there's almost like i would say three maybe different styles there's some sort of flat out rock there's there's definitely some sort of late night sort of folk kind of country sort of stuff in there and then there's some more kind of wilder psychedelic sort of songs for want of a better word as well so yeah there's a few different styles going on there so how did uh, and Dino, what was his role? What was his producing style? Or would you even call him the producer? Uh, was he more of an he engineer? He did definitely take it. No, well, he was definitely a bit of both. He had some strong opinions. Um, he mm -hmm. didn't really hold back on his opinions. I mean, we initially got um, – it was fax back then. So he kind of read, wrote, wrote all these handwritten fax notes on each song. Um, but it was hard for him to really get a chance to get in with the band and do pre-production. We maybe did a day of rehearsals where he sort of had listened to our sounds and mm. he was encouraging us to probably cut back and edit ourselves a bit more. Mm. Um, but it was, there wasn't a lot of time. And, and I think that a lot of the song, and he was aware of working with a record label and wanting to please them as well. But I think it changed and he's always stayed in touch, um, he really likes that album and and we've we've sort of had a friendship that we we don't keep in contact much but he i think he he has strong memories of making the album and i think he grew in appreciation for the band probably after working with us because initially he was pushing more the accessible end of the band but the hazier kind of jazzy element of the band i think he ended up enjoying more once the record was being recorded so I think he and his initial approach was to be a bit harsher on us to try and edit stuff and make it less indulgent. But after a while, he kind of went with it, and um, I think he almost started to enjoy the record more after it was finished. I think at the time it was maybe a bit of a mess to him, and he just did his best to kind of make sense of it. But um, yeah, I mean, he had a pretty big say in guitar tones and stuff like that. Um, and a lot of the advice he gave me personally, I kind of 
rebuffed at the time, but later on he had a lot of things that I probably learned from as a writer and a ranger, um, just in terms of a lot of the opinions he gave or things that I probably took on board on later albums. It, uh, he, where did the, the mix of acoustic electric, there's a very interesting, I think to the benefit of the record, mix of those two guitars all across this whole record. Was that something you guys yeah. were doing or did that come out from him in the studio? How did that come together? Pretty sure it's just something that we were doing. Um, there's definitely a folkier element that comes into the record compared to the, 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 the two records before are probably heavier. I think, you know, I know I was listening a lot to Big Star's Third Sister Lovers record, which I don't know. I mean, it's a classic cult record. Are you guys into that or familiar with that? Yeah, quite familiar. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know, any music nerd will know it's a sort of classic. And it's and it, and I would say it's almost a reference point for the album um, in that it's a quite a meandering, hazy, long record as well. And there's definite elements of, like, sort of weird lazy feedback and guitars with acoustic guitar over over the top um or underneath so it's sort of those elements of putting noisy sort of guitar sounds but with um you know with this sort of acoustic element on it and it sort of gives it a you know it sort of just takes it away from straight ahead rock and sort of makes it a bit a bit hazier and it, it sort of takes you into another late night place and it does mean that it divides your audience a bit because you have your rockest sort of types that are just like you know I like it when you guys are just flat out rock and sort of you know that that sort of thing and it, it sort of yeah it confuses people a bit but I like that halfway element because I like a lot of almost I can listen to a lot of noise avant-garde sort of music but I love I mean I'll listen to ABBA or the Beatles and then I'll listen to classic rock like Black Sabbath or Led Zeppelin I like all that stuff kind of where that stuff converges, that's the they're the bands and, and musicians that stay with me the longest. So I guess we're emulating that approach a bit. Yeah, well, I think that's what makes the band unique. I mean, um, you hear it in track one with that contrast between the very angular, kind of noisy beginning and verse, and then you go into the chorus and it's acoustic. I mean, that's it's right away. Hilarious. Yeah, it's like right <laughs> away. Really, yeah, it's like what? Yeah. Yeah. But that's what, you know, had you had it not done that, you know, there's a lot of other bands you start to sound, you know, you could start to sound like. Track two is the same for me. Um, helping you hate me. It, it, you could have very easily gotten much bigger guitars, a lot more distortion, and suddenly that song doesn't sound as unique as it does. But with it, the, the restraint that's on it, it keeps it in a space that doesn't sound like anybody else. So uh, that, that's something I enjoyed about the, this record in particular. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty important thing for the 
for any project I've been in, in, involved with is like, yeah, we could turn this into a classic sort of middle of the road rock song, and but uh, you know, boredom. Uh, being 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 bland is just I I I don't care. I mean, I'm sure lots of people say this about the music as well, but I don't I don't care what impact it has commercially. It's always important that integrity is really in, 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 important to me because in the long term, you know, I, I want to be able to look back on our albums and or any project we're involved with and feel good about it. Uh, um, yeah, rather than feel, because you'd always have friends or recollect people going, look, if you just did this or just did that, you'll make it easier for yourself. But I don't agree with that. I think you end up regretting that in the long term. You might get a short term sort of bit of success out of that, but you end up getting defined by that for the rest of the time you're playing music. People always remember the, the sort of easy route that you took. They don't care how interesting all the other stuff is. So to me, it's important from the ground up to sort of have that integrity in everything you do because that's what you're going to have to live with for the rest of your life is that are those recordings and i bet when you recorded them you never dreamed that everybody in the world would be able to log on to something like spotify or you know apple music and be able to listen to them whenever they want you know yeah that stuff didn't exist and i think (laughs) um yeah, I think with Spotify now, I think I think the later Blue Bottle Kids stuff, I don't think it's on it, but I think the early stuff because it was because it was aligned with Sony ATV or whatever. I think that they must have. I think they just try to put out every single thing they've ever released. They put out on all those streaming services. So all those because those albums were actually all out of print for quite a long time during the CD age. Because we got dropped after this album, we made one more EP, and then the then the label kind of gave up on us and dropped us. Um, um, so a lot of it was out of print for years and people were actually buying albums like Fear of Girls, you know, this flimsy CD copies for, you know, like, you know, 70 or $80 or some of the stuff even for, for more like $100 or because you couldn't get them. But now with the streaming services, everyone can listen to them again, which is, mm-hmm. I've, I'm sort of far beyond thinking about the monetary returns on those albums. It's like I'm sort of quite happy for people to be able to dig around and find right. Well, it, you know, going back to your point about if you think about it in terms of the, you know, the long play, the long term, how you're going to make your music and your in your art, that when everybody in the world has access to it, whenever they want, it suddenly becomes uh, even more relevant that you'd stuck to your guns, right? I mean, that you you did what you believed and you are in, you are truly in it for the long play because it's not just you know uh, going to be isolated to whoever has a physical copy of the of the disc. Um, yeah. Anybody can hear it at any time now, which is, is yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, at what point do you guys start touring in the '90s outside of Australia? Was it for this record, or was for, was it for the records before this? No, we didn't get outside of us. We always wanted to get outside of Australia, but especially back then, sort of when the internet wasn't a really big deal, it was pretty hard to make connections overseas and also because we were tied to a large label we pretty much we had to work within the restrictions of that label of that label too they'd signed us for the world and so if the overseas branches didn't want to release it which they didn't um sort of made it difficult so it wasn't till um i mean we never had a great deal of success overseas but patient we yeah uh, there's a whole funny story around patient where basically we got flown by this flown overseas over to america by some people and that was all supposed to happen that that's when we basically went overseas for the first time was for around patient and then we 
put out a, a couple of other records after that came out in a small very small label that were in Portland and we did one bit of yeah a couple of bits of touring right towards the end of the band um, we did a South by Southwest thing and then another American tour so that's the only place we really went to was a, was was America a few a few times but yeah around the time of fear of goals fear well fear of goals is mixed in america so i went i flew to seattle the label flew me to seattle and i hung out with jack and um mixed the record with well he mixed the record but we sort of sat together and worked on the mixes together in a studio in um in seattle so i got to go over there but the band didn't actually play in the states until like 1999 or yeah 90 i think 99 or 2000 was when we went over there for the first time but you self-released Patient, right? I can't, it was licensed to an to an independent label here called yeah. Citadel, so we yeah. paid for it all. But we had a we sort of did a typical, which is pretty much what everyone does now, um, where we paid for all the costs. But then a label sort of took care of manufacture and publicity. Um, we only did one album with them. Sure. And did you end up? Uh, where does Spin Records come into? playing all this because i remember them existing in the 90s and then kind of disappearing but they sang like a bunch of bands not just from the united states but from around the world and they were kind of a a big deal for a minute and then they kind of went away so yeah that was really weird that was that's the people that flew us to america okay and it and it just but it was just very that was really strange it was i think it was around the time when I don't know much about the business world, but they, they there were this group of people that managed to get investors to just in, invest in their label as being an online-only record label. I guess it was an early version of people just being able to buy music directly right. online. And so they had all this cash and they started signing all these bands. A lot of them were heavy metal bands, I think. I don't know from what I could remember. Um and this guy just turned up at a, we were supporting this band called Juno 44, like this um, band from Chicago in Sydney. And an American guy came up and met us there and just just saw us on a whim being recommended by someone and just really loved it. And then um, six months later, he'd managed to get us to, um, yeah, to fly over there. But they actually never released the album because they got, I don't know what happened. They got audited or something, and the whole thing got shut down while we were over there. So we kind of just got stranded over there, just sort of hanging out with no real purpose, and we just played as many shows as we as we as we could. It's a yeah, it's a long. I've I've actually got a there's a Blue Bottle Kiss Facebook page where I've written um, a kind of uh, write up on each release and just all the memories attached to it, and I, I go into great detail. <laughs> on all the different trials and misadventures that happened when we were um, in, in America. Yeah, and Ben um, Fletcher, who plays bass on Fear of Ghosts, he was in the band for a really long time and we're, you know, long-term friends, but we often, he lives in England now, but we often talk about those times because we went through so much ridiculous stuff living, mm. living in America, trying to survive. It was ridiculous. So I read that... Um... I know that you put out a after Blue Bottle Kiss, you did some solo records before your new band, but that you had done some solo shows in the '90s, sort of at the behest of the of the label, wanting you to go out and and do shows to support and spread the word. And I'm curious about, you know, the band 
is it's a pretty loud sound on a lot of the records. Um, did you find it difficult to interpret some of those songs in an acoustic setting or in a stripped down solo setting? Uh, no, they were all pretty much written on acoustic guitar. So um, one of the reasons the label was getting me to play them solo at at their different showcases was because they felt I think those showcases, they wanted to sell the band to people both working for the large label and also larger radio stations. And they, at the time, um, felt that the band would not be taken to very kindly by, by people from that background. But the guy who signed us, who had a lot of belief in the band, um, he really loved the songs and he felt like, well, if you just get up and play some of the songs that work acoustically, that's maybe a way in for people to hear the actual songs because I guess the opinion at the time was the songs kind of couldn't be heard beneath the band or something. But, um, so that was the that was the idea behind that for people to realise that, you know, that there was songwriting a player rather than the band being, you know, a kind of freewheeling, sort of noisy, jammy band. How'd the band take that? Uh, I don't know, it's so long ago, I I guess they were okay, I mean, I can understand if they wouldn't have been, I remember I I got flown to Hamilton Island, which is like this luxury island um, off Queensland, you know, it's a resort, it was such a weird experience and having to play there, I'm sure the other guys would have loved to come and sort of (laughs) hung out on the beach, Um, yeah, I mean, the same with me being flown to America to, to mix... Yeah, um, it was. I mean, the band went through quite a different, a lot of different lineups. Ben was a long-term member for, for for most of the albums, so we stuck together a lot. But I guess I was always the only songwriter, and um, I did tend to be a little bit of a musical dictator. I guess I'm still a little bit like that. I'm, I'm sort of moving into collaborating more, and it's been really good. But I just, I don't know. I just had really strong ideas about how the way the songs would sound and used to do a lot of the demos where I'd play a lot of the instruments and the guys were pretty cool I mean Ben especially in that he I don't know he was a fair bit younger than me he joined the band when he was a teenager and he, he really liked the songs and he was he was he added a really strong element his personality he's a really charismatic guy he's a great um great vocalist he, did, he does great harmonies in that album he's incredibly musical so he was a really good foil to work with, but he was also really respectful of the songwriting. He was kind of a fan of the of the songwriting even before he got involved. So I was lucky in that um, he was pretty cool. He really believed in the in, in the songs and was willing to kind of yeah let the label sometimes you know separate me from the band a bit, which would have been which would have been difficult. Um, but yeah, it was one of those things where I kind of was the songwriter with lots of different ideas, and the guys sometimes had to had to sort of cater to that a bit. It was just one of those dynamics. We weren't a band that sort of wrote, jammed, and wrote songs together really at that stage. Um, they would sort of come take on a life of their own on stage, and some songs would go in that direction. But there was that singer-songwriter element to the band. So on "Fear of Girls" and "Patient," which are the two records I'm most familiar with. There are a lot of appearances of um, violin, cello, piano, saxophone. I mean, the band is a guitar-based band, you know, usually. But those instruments make their way into the record. How, how does that happen? When, when do you 
decide to do that and, and how do you make that uh, an aspect of the band and the record? Yeah, well, Fear of Girls is especially similar like that. Patience pretty stripped back. It's pretty much a three-piece rock band. There isn't that much extra stuff. But on Fear of Girls, again, um, it was that opportunity of just wanting to push the envelope more and be more creative and be more ambitious um, rather than being a straight-ahead rock band. And, again, it was, you know, from listening to – as much as we were listening to noise rock kind of bands, um, you know, I, again, I, I think being inspired by listening to stuff like, you know, like Third Sister Lovers or Astral Weeks by Van Morrison, uh, records like that, a lot of the – a lot of the, you know, a lot of Tom Waits records, obviously, especially the later part of his career where he just, you know, really kind of um, pushed himself, um, you know, with so many diverse – influences and an exotic instrument you know instrumentation you know unusual instruments that was that was that kind of like it was a very big motivating factor of well what else can we do besides just playing as a as, as a rock band and i think mm. some of the songs uh the the they are quite melancholy and in, in instruments like piano um they definitely bring out that that dreamier um more melancholy uh, late night sort of feel. Mm -hmm. That's not something that we ever shied away from as a band. Mm -hmm. Really enjoyed because um, you know we listen to bands that you know atmospheric bands like the Church and the Cure and stuff like that, which 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 had those sort of more dreamy, melancholy elements. So I think those other more acoustic instruments like piano and strings and and horns, they all, as soon as you put them in the mix, they do. And if you're putting them with a sort of feedbacking guitars and rumbling drums, it sort of creates a real kind of weird disjointed ambience which which appeal, appealed to us Was every uh, was the band performing that, or were you bringing, uh, you know, uh, musicians in? Oh, we brought people in. My sister yeah. plays a lot of piano. My sister's a really accomplished pianist who who, who has released um, two albums of her own. Her name's Sophie Hutchings, and she's she's quite a popular kind of neoclassical piano player now. Who's released stuff around the world as well. And she was okay. really young during that period, but that was her first experience. Was with us. She plays she plays piano. Um, the, 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 my, my dad's a, um, a woodwinds player and, um, he's a professional musician. So he made his living being a session musician. So he, he used to play in the, the house band for a talk show over here. And he basically just pinched two horn players from that, from that talk show and, um, helped me arrange that I would just sing the parts because I can't write, read um music i would sing the parts and play them on guitar and he sort of was kind enough to kind of chart it out for the other guys so he organized um the horn section on on songs like ice on the road and so forth so um it's kind of collaborating yeah with people that i knew um and the string players weren't people that i knew we just um i don't know they were just people that were you know just session people that we brought in yeah so is your sister older or younger She's quite a bit. She's about five years younger. Okay. So 
Yeah, she was in her teens still, I think, when she played piano on the... Uh, she was, like, probably 17 or... 17 or 18 when she was playing on these albums. Because uh, a common theme also with people we've spoken to is usually there's either a parent or sometimes two parents or an older sibling that plays music that leads people into, you know, picking up an instrument or singing in a choir or, you know, exploring that as opposed to, you know, not having anybody in the family that, that, uh, plays any sort of musical instruments. So that's, that's, um, uh, common thing also that we've you know run into yeah oh it's definitely there with us i mean my older brother scott um he plays an infinity broke with me and has played on um, quite a lot of the solo records and he's really he's a great musician plays um really good drummer and plays guitar as well um at that stage he wasn't really playing music he was involved in other stuff but um he was a bit of an introduction to music in the when we were teenagers, he started working on a building site and started bringing home a lot of garage rock albums, a lot of Australian underground garage rock um, bands like Radio Birdman and um, the Celebrate Rifles and bands from the 80s that were kind of harder Detroit-edged bands. And um, and we both started listening to that stuff. So he was definitely a gateway um, to, to, to away from mainstream rock and stuff that was raw and... and, and you know, people that didn't sing conventionally. Um, so yeah, that and that that whole yeah, that's a big theme about family is us swapping albums and listening to stuff together. That's definitely there. Jay mentioned patient. And I, I want to get to that record just for a sec because when we went back, when I when I went back and listened to the um, the review that we did, we spent a little bit of time talking about the first track on the record, uh, "Return to the City of Folded Arms," and the one thing that has still perplexed me about that song and maybe you can explain is the vocal in the verses it does this weird thing where you're singing a line and it's ending but then you're starting the next line before you've actually finished the previous line and i'm (laughs) curious about (laughs) yeah how do you how do you write that where are you Uh, it's not hard writing it but it's not me singing the second line it's it's that's a co-sung song it's sung ben the ben fletcher the guy i was telling you about um who was playing bass we actually sing that song together so i wrote all the words and the melodies and he just listened to the demo i must have demoed it where i sung both bits just overdubbing which is easy to do recording wise but obviously you can't sing it live like that so he he just learned the second part and we just tried it traded lines and then we sing it together in the chorus he sings the high bit i sing the low bit can't say that it's great to be back when all the lavender in my backyard is in the door He's actually very – people kind of would think our voices sound similar. Maybe they did at that stage, but he's actually a much better – like technically a much better singer than me. He's got a very sweet sort of voice. But um, 
we uh, yeah we so we traded lines. We did that in a couple of songs. That became a quite a big part of the band as it went on. Is um is us singing together. We had quite a good vocal chemistry. Is he had a very sweet, um, really good falsetto, more of a sweet sort of singing voice. And I kind of had a, a I don't know. I don't have a natural singing voice. You know, mine voice is just something I kind of just just smash into shape into just to. I can hear stuff how I want it to sound, but it's it's a rougher sort of voice. But uh, kind of works quite well the two, the uh, two voices. Yeah, and that, and that song, I think for me that that song is a good represent. If somebody was like, "Well, what does this Blue Bottle Kiss band sound like?" I would play them that song because it sort of encapsulates a lot of the different influences that you've talked about. It almost sounds like Dinosaur Junior covering a Neil Young song from the seventies. With yeah. there's like that there's some guitar, guitar tone that gets a little crazy, and then there's those the falsetto um, that both Neil Young and, and Jay Massis would do every once in a while, and it has the that folky aspect, but it's still kind of noisy. And I, I just there's so much going on in that song, but it's so and it's so compact. It's not, I don't think it's three minutes. And, yeah, it's pretty uh, simple. Like, yeah. you know, it's one of the most basic Blue Bottle Kiss songs that we ever released. Like, just in terms of the actual, yeah, chords and beat and everything like that. Is which is probably why it was the single of that record. It's it's sort of, um, yeah, it's pretty immediate. Yeah, and I think that's what I responded to was, uh, I this you know the song starts you're in it right away and it's uh, it really is a, like a covers all the ground that you guys that you guys do so can you give us a an idea of of what your current project is um infinity broken and, and um i i believe in reading from your website you have a couple releases out for that band or at least one yeah yeah we've got two albums out okay um yeah so that sort of is people that were involved in my solo records but it's a lot the solo records are more acoustically based um infinity brokes some pretty heavy jammy sort of elements to it. Like my brother sort of plays in industrial sort of percussion, like bits of a drum kit, but also like um, like a, a sort of gas, um, what do you call them, like a sort of gas container and a, a metal bin and sort of stuff like that. And then Jared, who was the last drummer in Blue Bottle Kiss, plays a traditional drum kit. I play, I play guitar. And then Ruben plays bass. Um, and then sometimes my brother comes off the percussion and plays the second guitar. So it's a fairly noisy sort of band. Um, it's sort of because um, I just stepped away from electric music for quite a few years. And it's it's definitely a return to the heart of harder sort of sounds that, uh, that Blue Bottle have done. Um, but it's probably, I don't know, it's hard for me to objectify, but probably like the more experimental elements noisy experimental elements of blue bottle kiss um it's got quite a 70s there's a 70s sort of element like there's a it's very rhythmic like i would say it's got quite strong kraut rock and fusion influences like bands like can and um or even some of the miles davis kind of fusion stuff that he was doing in the late 60s early 70s so it's got a quite a strong muscular rhythmic element to it so it's definitely a sort of some of it's flat out rock, but some of it's definitely pushing towards more experimental kind of hypnotic territory. And I know you mentioned earlier about, you know, the state of some of the recordings. One of the, I don't, I don't know if this is happening in, in Australia, but there's been quite a, a big vinyl resurgence in uh, the U.S. in the last couple of years. 
lot yeah, of a lot of bands are releasing on you know 180 gram, re-releasing their stuff from the 90s that never got released on you know vinyl. Is there is there any uh, thoughts on doing that with some of the older recordings? Well, we'd have to do it ourselves, and it costs a lot of money. And there's also licensing issues with some of the early stuff, like Fear of Girls being owned by, you know, by Sony. I don't know what where that's at contractually, but um, it'd be a lot of energy and a lot of investment, and I don't know about the returns. <laughs> so, right. Um, I guess it takes a lot of energy to to keep the projects that I'm involved with afloat now because um, they're all independent projects. So the two Infinity Broke records were basically um, funded by through crowdfunding. Um, so sort of um, people that have followed my music, whether it's Blue Bottle Kiss or Solar Stuff for years, all pitched in and essentially paid for those recordings to come out. Um, so that's that takes a lot of energy to make that happen. So to invest in it happening in past work is something – I'd be happy for someone else to do if someone else wanted to do it. Um, Cause people ask us all the time, you know, but it's like, well, yeah, we'd love it as well, but it's like, I've only got so many hours in the day and so much money. And it's, it's one of those things where personally I invested so much time and energy in blue bottle kiss that um, I'm really proud of it. And, and all the guys that are involved with the band arm are all good friends, but it's one of those things where it's like a third party, I think would have to come in someone with, with passion and, and organizational skills and a, a little bit of cash to make it happen. Um, and Australia is pretty small um, compared to you guys. Like, I can't imagine anyone really being willing to make that amount of effort. I mean, I'd be happy to be surprised, but uh, until that happens, you know, where someone else sort of wants to make it happen, I don't, I don't see it happening personally, but certainly not opposed to it. Well, that, that crowdfunding option is, a, is one that I've seen a couple of people use. So that might not be. Maybe maybe we can get on board with that. Yeah, and, sure. Uh, and uh, that's uh, we've we've been trying to push a variety of artists to do it, and they yeah. have the same response. Well, I'm waiting for somebody to, you know, <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, well, I'm I'm playing the lottery. I'm trying to put the funds together. Yeah, I'm yeah. To make it happen. That's the thing. Uh, I mean, a lot of people end up having that attitude towards everything in the music, like they're just waiting for someone else to do it for them. And I certainly don't have that. But, right. Um, yeah, when it comes to past stuff, it's like, yeah, pretty much put as much as I was willing to put into that at that particular time. And now it's like, like I've got two albums I'm working on at the moment, like a solo album and a, another project called The Tall Grass. So both those albums are almost finished recording. So again, that's going to be a lot of energy to try and work out how to put them out and stuff. So it's always about what I'm always most, I mean, I'm proud of what I've been involved with with other people in the past, but it takes up all my energy just to keep the current projects afloat. So the past stuff, it's like, I'm sure I could start a crowdfunding thing to get Blue Bottle Kiss stuff released in the past and people would jump on board, but my heart's not really in it, you know, like not that I don't like the music, but my heart's in this stuff. It's pretty natural for your heart to be in the stuff that you're working on now. It's pretty much the way I've always worked as an artist. It's just I'm investing, emotionally investing in the stuff that I'm doing currently. And the past stuff almost becomes public property. Like everybody else almost gains ownership of it. And, you know, when you have people telling you how they met their girlfriend when they were at this gig and when they heard that record, it becomes there almost as much theirs as as yours and so i kind of think the same thing of like yep yeah, someone loves enough wants to do something with it they have our blessing 
Well, where should uh, I know you've got your website, uh, jamiehutchings.com. Um, that's where they should go for like tour news and updates on recordings and, and merch and that sort of stuff. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's the best spot. Like you can join the newsletter. I think there's links to all the Facebook pages cause there's like four different Facebook pages for, you know, for the different musical projects. But yeah, if you go onto that, I mean, with the internet, you can find out anything about anyone, but I think, um, with all the projects I've been involved with, that's probably the best place to go and then i probably update the facebook ones more often because i actually know how to do it i have to get a friend to 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 do the website for me but um yeah it's still a good it's probably the best place to go i think it's got links to all the Bandcamp pages where you can buy um you know stuff from blue bottle and from me and from infinity broke so yeah that's probably the best spot excellent well jamie thanks so much for uh spending some of your I guess it's your Sunday afternoon, our Saturday evening here. But uh, yeah. thanks, thanks for spending some time with us and talking about the record and and uh, looking forward to hearing uh, the new music you've got coming out. Yeah, sure, anytime. No, I appreciate you guys being interested. And I just want to remind everybody listening that uh, you can go to patreon.com backslash podcast for exclusive info and uh, bonus material and all that sort of stuff and all the normal links and whatnot. So that's it. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash dig me out or requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. me out podcast.com.